you don't, you can take one from the seat back in front of you and open to page 839, where you will find 1 Timothy 3. So 1 Timothy chapter 3. I, um, several years ago, I sat in the Starbucks waiting. We were supposed to meet at 10 a.m., and it was 10.15. I didn't have a cell phone on me. I usually give people 20 minutes. But he wasn't usually late. Was I at the right Starbucks? There are uh, two plazas at the intersection where we had said we would meet, um, Scott Road and 72nd. And each one had its own Starbucks. So I was going back over the conversation in my mind. Uh, we had agreed to meet... Um, on the church side of the road, and that's where I was, at the plaza on the church side. The, the other uh, Starbucks was on the other side of the road, unless, of course, it was the other road, and, and then both Starbucks were on this side. Oh, boy. Well, it turned out he was at the other Starbucks. Miscommunications. They happen all the time, don't they? But have you ever considered that they can happen between us and God, too? God's main source of communication to us is this book. And so we hold this book very highly at CBC. It's our final authority in all matters of belief and practice. After all, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. Everything in this book is God-breathed. It's therefore authoritative for us. I may have my opinion, you may have your opinion, but what God says is the final word. But what if there's miscommunication or misunderstanding between us and God? Last Sunday and this Sunday, we're looking at two passages of Scripture where uh, there are passages which are prone to just such misunderstanding. And so in many ways, last week's message and this week's message on church leadership and governance are as much case studies about how we understand the Bible as they are messages about those two topics. And so let's begin this morning by talking about how we understand the Bible. When I first became a Christian and I began to seriously read the Bible, I assumed that the Bible had just, it must have just sort of fallen out of heaven. It was God's word after all. Now, I was vaguely aware that it had been written by Hebrews and Greeks a long, long time ago, but I figured God must have dictated it to them or something. I didn't know. And although I wouldn't have put it in these words at the time, I thought that the Bible was God's communication of truth to us outside of and above any human culture, that it kind of came in raw form down from heaven as God's truth. What God said to Moses and the Israelites was what God said to the Greco-Roman and Jewish churches of the New Testament times was what God says or is what God says to me and to us today. And so as I read the Bible, I found, uh, I read it in what I later found out is called a flat text approach where um, I took the whole book to be God's one uniform authoritative religious manual. And, and so, for instance, if I wanted to know 
what God said about spiritual gifts, I would open up the manual, I would page through my Bible, I would find all the places that talked about spiritual gifts, I'd write them all down, and there I had a definitive biblical gift of all the spiritual gifts you could have. But as I kept reading my Bible, I realized that this flat text approach didn't work so well. There were a lot of things I couldn't understand that way, like, like why the Old Testament said not to cook a goat in its mother's milk. Hmm. What's that about? Or, or why the New Testament says to greet one another with a holy kiss. I mean, in my church growing up, we had an Italian guy who seemed perfectly happy to do that, but, but the rest of us weren't so sure. And so as I got to know the Bible better, I came to realize the Bible isn't as flat as I thought, that, that there, are, uh, there is variety, there is texture, there's subtlety in the Bible. I, I heard that, that Luke's Greek is better than John's Greek, that Isaiah, what, what he could say masterfully by writing a Hebrew poem, Paul could better communicate through a passionate Greek letter. What I was discovering slowly over time was a new way to read the Bible. It's, it's called, they of course have a very big term for it, it's called the grammatical historical method. And you don't need to remember that if you don't want to. But this, this approach of the Bible recognizes that God inspired real people living in certain times and places to write to other people living in those times and places, and that what they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was first God's word to those people they were writing to or for, and that now all these words are God's words for us today, but, but not as directly because we today, in a sense, are reading someone else's mail. And so before we can apply the Bible to our situation, we have to do the work of seeing what the Bible meant in its original culture. And then we can discover principles and paradigms from that which speak authoritatively to our situation and culture. Are you following me? Yeah. So what the Bible actually is then is as um, God's written word is nicely parallel to who Jesus is as God's living word. Jesus is not only God, nor is Jesus only human, but rather Jesus is fully God, fully human. God come to us incarnate as a fully human, human one. And so likewise, the Bible is not only the word of God, nor is it merely the words of human beings, but rather it is fully God's word, yet spoken to us, fully contextualized in the words of real people who lived in real situations. Now isn't that cool that God would come down to us humans and speak to us in our own lingo in ways that we could understand? Yet, as we read all these personal, earthy poems and stories and letters which make up the Bible, we get this sense that they all hang together, that, that ultimately they're all the word of one author, fully God, fully human. Now, now the humanness of the Bible is, is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it made it really easy for the old Hebrews and Greek cultures to understand, but on the other hand, as cultures change and languages change, we have a lot of work to do to translate all of that from those cultures to ours. And it's easy to forget to do this work and to just read 
a passage at face value as a flat text. And that's especially easy to do in the case of what seems to be a practical, straightforward passage like our passage from the Apostle Paul this morning. There's not much here we don't understand, or we think we don't understand. The danger when we forget, though, that it was written, first of all, to an ancient culture, is misunderstanding and miscommunication between us and Paul, between us and God. And so I'm going to try to interpret this text the same way I try to interpret every text, first considering it in its original context. And in doing so, I find myself in the unenviable position this morning of interpreting today's passage in a somewhat different way than the way CBC has traditionally used it in the selection of elders. So (laughs) feel sorry for me if you want to, but here goes. Remember, we've seen over the past several weeks that Paul is writing the letter of 1 Timothy to urge his young assistant Timothy to stay in Ephesus and deal with some false teachers there. Those teachers are teaching bad theology, and they're thereby turning the Ephesian church into a toxic environment. We saw that two weeks ago. And Timothy's got to stop them so that the church can grow healthy again. Some of these false teachers may well be leaders of this church. And if so, Timothy will have to rebuke them and to warn them to shape up or else he's going to have to remove them from leadership and he's going to have to find some new leaders to take their place. And so Paul, when we get to chapter 5, I'm not sure if that's what Greg's going to preach on next week. We'll see. But if you read on to chapter 5, you'll see that Paul actually addresses there the removal of bad elders. But here in chapter 3, Paul gives us a list, or gives Timothy, first of all, and then us, a list of qualifications which good leaders should have. Now, for Timothy, this list would have served two purposes. First, it would help Timothy to know what sorts of new leaders he should find to replace any old ones that he had to have removed. And second, if Timothy does have to remove some bad leaders, which could be a difficult, contentious process, judging from the kind of guys these are, if you read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, then this list gives Timothy the backup he needs to do the job. Remember, we saw two Sundays ago that the whole church is most probably going to hear this letter being read in their church services. And as they do, and as Paul describes what church leaders should be like, people are going to be mentally comparing this list that they're hearing read by the actual qualities of the leaders of their church. And if there are leaders who don't match up to this list, that should be clear not just to Timothy, but to the whole church. And so hopefully he'll have their support in dealing with these guys. Now, does that make sense? So what does this mean for how we understand this list today? Well, it means that this list is probably not Paul's top 10 list of characteristics that all church leaders everywhere must have. Rather, it's a list targeted to help Timothy get the right kind of leaders in Ephesus to squash the false teaching and to help that first century church to grow healthy again. And as we carefully read through this list in context, we get at least three indications that this is in fact a targeted list. First, If you read through all of 1 and 2 Timothy, you'll notice that many of the qualities on this list in chapter 3 are the exact opposites of the qualities that Paul says the false teachers have. 
So, for example, the false teachers lack self-control, 2 Timothy 3.3. And Paul says here, good leaders must have self-control. The false teachers are quarrelsome, 2 Timothy 2.23. They're given to strife, 1 Timothy 6.4. Paul says good leaders must not be quarrelsome, but must be gentle. The false teachers are in it to get rich, 1 Timothy 6.5. Paul says good leaders must not be lovers of money or greedy for gain. The false teachers have consciences which are seared as with a hot iron, 1 Timothy 4.2. Paul says good leaders must have clear consciences. Two false teachers have been handed over to Satan, 1 Timothy 1.20. Some have wandered from the faith, 1 Timothy 6.10. Paul says good leaders must not be recent converts, lest they fall under the same judgment of the devil. The false teachers are giving the church a bad reputation. They're worming their way into widows' households, no doubt mooching off those widows, and many interpreters suspect having their way with them. 2 Timothy 3.6. Paul says good leaders must be above reproach, faithful to their wives, managing their own households well, and showing hospitality. So in 1 Timothy 3, Paul is listing qualities which will make it crystal clear for Timothy and for the whole Ephesian church that these false teachers have no business being leaders in this church. The second indication we get that this is a targeted list is that the qualities that Paul lists for Timothy in our passage are not the same list that Paul gives Titus over in Titus 1. Now, you may know that Titus 1 is the other place in Scripture that we find, where we find a list uh, that, of qualities that church leaders should have. And so it's tempting to just combine both lists to um, weed out the duplicates and then to use the results as God's authoritative list for what qualities all church leaders should have. But on the other hand, Paul didn't give Timothy's list to Titus. And Paul didn't give Titus's list to Timothy. And there's good reason for that. Timothy and Titus are in two different situations. Uh, Timothy is in Ephesus in a troubled church. He's figuring out what leaders might need to go and who to replace them with. Titus is on Crete in a brand new church, selecting leaders for the very first time. And that's why Paul tells Timothy that leaders must not be recent converts. But Paul doesn't tell Titus that. Why? Well, because more than likely, everyone on the church in Crete was a recent convert. Now, granted, there are a lot of similarities between Timothy's and Titus' lists, and that leads to the third reason that we shouldn't take either of these lists as universally applicable to all churches everywhere. And that is that many of the qualities on both lists can be found on similar lists written by philosophers and political theorists of Paul's day to describe the qualities pagan leaders should aspire to. Have you ever noticed that most of the qualities on Paul's lists are not particularly Christian qualities? For example, above reproach, which basically means your record is squeaky clean. No one has any dirt on you. Faithful to his wife. Temperate. Respectable. Not given to drunkenness not violent, not greedy. Our nation, as corrupt as it is, would still like to see these qualities in our political leaders, wouldn't we? And so they did in Paul's day. And so these qualities just further highlight what scoundrels the false teachers are. 
They're not even respectable by worldly standards. And so they've got to go. They're ruining the church's witness and reputation in its community. They're ruining the church. Which is why Paul says, by contrast, that good church leaders have to have a good reputation with outsiders. Now, does this mean that it doesn't matter to Paul whether church leaders have distinctively Christian qualities? Of course not. But Paul isn't writing a general handbook for selecting church leaders in every situation here. He's rather helping Timothy to sort out a particularly sticky situation in Ephesus. Well, where does that leave us when we need to find guidance from God in selecting leaders for our church? Well, we've got the whole New Testament to draw on. Starting with Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, which Paul doesn't mention, about how those who want to be great among us must be the servants of all. And then right from there, we can go through the New Testament and we can get a lot of wise instruction. And there is a lot that 1 Timothy can still teach us. Because while the situation is not the same as that of Timothy, there are principles that we can learn from this text which do, no doubt, still apply to us today. Before we look at what some of those principles are, though, let me say a few general words about the type of church leaders that we find in the New Testament. Paul mentions three types in 1 Timothy 3. He mentions overseers. Traditionally, uh, this word has been translated bishop. Um, He mentions deacons, and he mentions literally women. Some translations say they're the wives of deacons. Others say that they're female deacons, and it's really hard to tell. Later in chapter 5, Paul also mentions elders, some of whom teach. Then in Titus 1, Paul talks briefly about elders, and then he switches and he talks about overseers. In Philippians, Paul mentions overseers and deacons. Throughout Acts, Luke refers to elders of various churches. Luke also mentions seven men who feed widows, but contrary to popular belief, Luke never calls them deacons. In 1 Peter, Peter mentions elders who oversee. In 1 Thessalonians and Hebrews, Paul and the writer of Hebrews simply talk about leaders, generic. Now, not surprisingly, there are three different views on what all this means. First, some conclude that the early church had two types of leaders. They had deacons and they had elders, and overseer is just another name for an elder. Second, others look at the same data and they conclude that all church leaders were called elders. But there were two kinds of elders. There were some elders who were overseers, perhaps those elders taught. And other elders were called deacons, perhaps those elders didn't teach. Then still others, third, look at the same data and conclude there were three kinds of leaders, overseers, elders, and deacons. The bottom line is we really don't know. We don't know if all the early churches called their leaders by the same names in various cities. We don't know if these names or leadership roles changed and developed over the time that the New Testament books were being written. We don't even know much about what these leaders did. As far as we know, all we know about deacons is that they served because that's what deacon means. We don't know anything else. And we know a little more about overseers. We know they oversaw their churches, 
We also know from the meaning of overseer that they cared for and guarded their churches. We know they shepherded. We know they led or administered their churches. We know that some of them taught. But that's all still pretty general stuff. Now, we also don't know how these leaders were organized. We don't know if each New Testament house church had one leader and that these leaders together oversaw all of the house churches in a given city or region, which is what Church of Ephesus would have meant. It would have meant all the different house churches in Ephesus. Or on the other hand, maybe um, a group of leaders together looked after each little house church. We don't know for sure. Now here's my point in mentioning all this. Two points, actually. First, God doesn't seem too interested in telling us exactly how to organize our churches. Despite all the church splits and denominations that have been formed over these issues. God seems to be saying, I'm flexible. Do what works best in your context. I'll give you some principles, but then you figure it out. And second, we have to be careful not to assume that just because we call our leaders elders at CBC, that that means we're talking about the same thing that Paul was talking about when he referred to elders or overseers in his letters. It would be the same in two companies today. Just because two leaders in two different companies have the same job title doesn't mean they're the same thing. To find out if they're the same thing, we have to look at their job descriptions. But that's precisely what we don't have in detail in the case of the New Testament leaders. So we need to be cautious in assuming that what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 3 or in Titus 1 applies directly and exactly to the leaders we call elders and deacons at CBC. We just need to be careful lest we have misunderstanding. All right, well, in the time that we have remaining, let's see what principles we can find in 1 Timothy to guide us today. Let me point out four of them. First, our leaders must be those whose lives and characters make them people whom we and others respect. They must have a good reputation with outsiders so that they can lead the church in having a good reputation in the community. Our church leaders must have the same common sense characteristics that we would look for in any leader. That's number one. Second principle, our leaders must also be generous and hospitable. Verse two. Hospitality back then didn't mean having a few friends over for dinner. It was more like what Count Zinzendorf did for the, Hutter, the uh, Moravians. Hospitality meant opening your home to travelers for extended periods of time and often hosting a church in your house. And hospitality, if you read the New Testament, was a fundamental value of the early church and leaders were to lead the way. Godly leaders give sacrificially. They welcome people in. They share what they have so as to be a blessing to others. They do that by example. Now, granted, many of these would have had servants and large homes. And we have dishwashers. We don't have servants, though. Um, so we may have to adjust our expectations here for the 21st century. Okay, third principle. 
Our leaders must prove their merit by first showing good, faithful leadership in their families and their jobs. Now, I say jobs, too, because in verse 4, Paul literally says leaders must manage their households well. And remember, households back then weren't just nuclear families. They often included, as they still do in the Middle East, aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents and in-laws. And um, in many cases, slaves in the first century, apprentices, partners, and clients. They were, in other words, not just your family. They were your job and your business as well. And if you could manage all that well, then you were well suited to manage God's household, the church. But Paul does especially zero in on the nuclear family, doesn't he, in this chapter? In verse 4, he says a leader's children must obey him. Notice the plural of children there. In verse 2, the leader must be a man of one woman. That's literally how the Greek reads, a man of one woman. Now, this has raised a lot of questions. Must all church leaders be men? Must they be married? Must they have children, plural, at least two? How literally do we apply all this? Well, if leaders must be married with children, then that disqualifies Jesus, Paul, and probably Timothy. It also seems to contradict 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says singleness is better because you have more time to serve the Lord. So it seems far more likely that Paul isn't saying that church leaders in all times and all places have to be married men with children, but rather Paul's recognizing that in the Ephesian church, most of those qualified to be leaders were married men with children. That may not be the case today in our situation. And so to figure out who our church leaders should be, whether they could be single men, whether they could be women, we're going to have to look at the whole Bible and see what we can figure out. But for those men who are married with children, Paul has more to say. He says their children must be obedient. Because how your children turn out says a lot about how well you'll do at discipling and nurturing spiritual children in the faith. Of course, though, remember in Paul's day, they didn't have teen culture. And they didn't have extended adolescence into your 30s. And so for a whole bunch of reasons, parents today and all the parents of teens, I can see you smiling out there, you have a much tougher challenge raising kids than they did back in Paul's day. You have less influence also as to how your kids turn out. And so we have to take that into account as we apply this today. Well, Paul also then addresses the marriage relationship. And again, there are at least three views on what this phrase, man of one woman, means. First, some say it refers to men who are not polygamous. But polygamy was very rare in a place like Exodus, and so you wonder why would Paul have even mentioned it. So others, second, say it refers to men who have never had a second wife for any reason, not even because their first wife died. This is the most literal meaning of the word, or the phrase, man of one woman. And it's well known that in the ancient world and in the ancient church, they held in high regard men and women who remained faithful to their first spouse, even if that spouse had died. The weakness of this view, though, is that later in chapter 5, verse 9, Paul tells the church not to take care of old widows unless they have been a woman of one man 
the exact same phrase, just with the man and woman reversed. So don't take care of widows unless they're woman of one man. But then Paul goes on five verses later and he encourages younger widows to get married again. Now, why would Paul tell younger widows to remarry if by so doing they would be barred from ever receiving help from the church later in their old age if they needed it? That doesn't seem to make sense. Are you with me? Okay, so some have a variation on this second view and they just logically say, well, then it must mean that um, leaders may have a second spouse if their first one dies, but not if the first one was a divorce. After all, um, we know that God hates divorce, and so that makes sense to us. But the question is, is that what Paul meant? It, it seems like a, a, a lot of nuancing to squeeze into the simple phrase, man of one woman, or woman of one man. So others say um, that they have another idea, a third view. They say that man of one woman or woman of one man simply means faithfully married to the spouse that you're currently married to, that you're faithful. It was very acceptable in that day for men to sleep around with servant girls, with mistresses. It was a regular part of Roman culture. And as we've seen, we have indications that the false teachers in Ephesus were doing just that. And maybe Paul's just saying, no, godly leaders must not be like that. If they're married, they must be faithful to their spouses. So that's the third view. All right, very quickly, um, a fourth principle for church leaders, and that's simply that our leaders must have pure motives. They can't be in it for the money. They can't be in it for the status, lest they become conceited, as Paul says in verse 6. Okay, four principles. So in conclusion, we've run through all that very quickly this is God's word. Through this word, God speaks his authoritative will for our belief and practice. Yes, or yet, sorry, we're prone to misunderstanding. Especially when we fail to realize that God's word came to us in one culture and situation, and we live in another and so we can't always, we shouldn't always apply everything immediately and directly to ourselves. Rather, we need to try as best we can to understand God's word in the context in which it was originally being addressed, and then to discern the principles which represent God's will for us in our context. And if that approach is right, then what God's message to us is today from this text I think is something like this. Yes, appoint leaders. Churches need good ones. I don't care a great deal what the details look like. Do what fits your context. Make sure you have some leaders who can teach. Make sure you have others who can care and oversee and administer and lead. And make sure you have others who can serve. And be careful who you select. And I've given you the whole New Testament to give you direction on this. But here are a few principles to get you started. Make sure there are people worthy of respect. Make sure there are people who are hospitable and giving. Make sure there are people who manage their families 
and their jobs well, who do a good job with their children, who are faithful to their spouses. And lastly, make sure they're people with pure motives. Because to lead my people is a noble task. And those who serve well may not get rich. They, they may not be honored for it. But they get something better by far. Verse 13. They gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Beyond that, we can have fun in the discussion group talking further about these things. Let's pray. God, we're, we confess that we are a people prone to misunderstanding. Um, that's true of my wife and I. And it's true as I've read your scripture over the years that I, as many of us have, have changed our own view on how we've understood things. We pray that you'd give us grace with one another as we do see things differently, we understand things differently. Help us to have a firm, passionate grasp of the things that matter most, the, the core, central good news of the gospel which can make us a healthy community and give us grace as we struggle together through the things that we disagree on and see differently. Give us the humility to be open and we all want to try to understand your word better. I don't understand it perfectly. Um, but we pray that you'd help us all. In Jesus' name, amen.